This morning, morning's reading, New Testament reading, is from Revelation 19, 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be a, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard... <clears throat> what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and, re and exult and give him the, the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning to you guys once again. Um, if I haven't yet met you, my name is Tim Udodge, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace and Peace, and we're glad you're with us. If you are joining us for the first time, you've already heard we have been studying through this last book of the Bible. Um, I think that it's fair to say that this is a, a book of the Bible that's very different than most of the books that we might normally turn to. That if you're a Christian and you go to the Bible just for some, some reading or maybe some encouragement, then you might not always turn to Revelation. Because what we've seen is that John has been given, John who is... Um, banished to an island at the end of his life, uh, John, who dearly loved Jesus and who Jesus dearly loved, is given this vision. And in this vision, we've seen all sorts of things, but mainly what we've been coming back to is that we've been recognizing that things here on earth that we experience right now in our day-to-day -day life, they are not only as they seem to be, that John kind of pulls back the curtain and he gives us a vision of what is simultaneously taking place even now, that even right now God is on his throne and the slain lamb is, is at his right hand, that even now there are angels and archangels who are giving praise to him, that even now, as we've seen in the last few weeks in some of these daunting passages, there, there is, um, metaphorically speaking, a dragon and a beast of the sea and a beast of the earth. And as we looked at last week, a great prostitute whose name is Babylon, who wants to lure away the people from God. 
who want to take away their, their obedience and, and their loyalty to him. And so this week we're taking a turn. Um, some of you may be really glad about that. We're taking a turn towards the end of this book. And we're seeing not necessarily what's taking place right now, but we're, giving, we're given a vision of what is to come. And I've said all along that this is a book that was written um, to people, many of whom were suffering for what they believed. That they were suffering because they belonged to Jesus and they were loyal to Jesus, and especially in a place and a time um, when that was not just frowned upon, but you were persecuted for it. And this was a book of discipleship, that this was a book of showing them what it meant to fix their eyes on the fact that, that God is in control of all things, even though it may not seem that way, and he is doing something that you can't quite understand, and one day he is going to completely eradicate evil, and every un- injustice will be undone. And he wanted them to fix their eyes upon that so that, as we looked at a few weeks ago, they might endure so that they might endure to the end. And I think one of the visions that, that held them captive had to be this vision, this feast that is coming, this wedding feast. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remove um, all distraction from us, that you would help us to come alongside John, help us to see what he sees. Father, for those of us this morning who are here and we are thinking, um, my life can't get any worse. We're thinking, is this really worth it? We may be thinking, is any of this actually true? Father, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty in this passage. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus. And we know, Father, that we can only do that if your spirit moves among us and allows that. And so we ask your spirit to do that this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought um, as we turn to a passage that is really um, very hopeful and very beautiful, that it would be appropriate to start this morning with a quote from comedian Chris Rock. I know that's what you were probably expecting. Chris Rock once said, when you meet somebody for the first time, you're not really meeting them, you're meeting their representative. And you know what he means, right? It happened probably this morning um, as you were doing the passing of the peace, that you met somebody who you've never met before, and you switch into this mode because it's kind of terrifying to meet new people. And you switch into this mode and you're thinking, how am I going to present myself? And it's like we send out a representative that we want to show people um, this image really of what we want to be. And why do we do that? All, okay, all of us do that, okay? All of us know what that feels like. Why do we do that? And I think the reason that we do that, and one of the things that we know is that one of the effects of being fallen and and sinful people who live in a fallen and sinful world is that we are oftentimes confronted with just a lot of fear. And we're confronted with a lot of fear because what we know is we know the things that are happening within our own hearts and the things that are happening within our own minds. And we know the things that we have done in our lives that maybe nobody else actually knows about. 
And so there's a good chance that what we want more than anything is that we want to hide those things. We want to bury them. We don't want anybody to see the things that we've done or the things that we've thought. And so there's a good chance that we think if we meet somebody and they actually see us, they actually know us, they actually see us as we really are, there's a good chance they're going to want to run the other way. They're not going to really like what they see. And so what do we do? We, we, we make these kind of individualized PR campaigns so that we can present ourselves to one another in a way that seems accept, acceptable, that we create masks um, that we wear in the world. As we go out into the world, we, we put on masks. We create an image and that image is, is, is wanting us to present to the world and keep from the world the things that we want to keep hidden. And I think that that's why it's so powerful when we meet somebody, and maybe you've had this experience. Um, we had a new members class yesterday, and somebody was saying something along these lines that in their neighborhood group, you've had maybe this experience, and I hope you do, where somebody talks about that thing that you have in your life that you want to keep hidden? That somebody talks about it, they actually give words to it, they actually say it out loud, and they talk about the thing that you have been desperately trying to avoid facing and you don't want anybody else to know about. And you hear somebody actually verbalize the fact that they're broken in the same way that you're broken, and there's this part of you that wants to cry out. You feel that way too? I can't believe it. I thought that I was the only one that felt that way. Or maybe it's that time when you've, been, when you've been caught, and you've been caught in a, in a lie, or maybe you've been caught in the midst of, of doing something that you're incredibly ashamed of, and there is somebody in your life who comes to you, and they say to you words like this that make your heart want to explode. I see you. I see what you've done. And I'm here to tell you that there is nothing that you could ever do that would make me ever stop loving you. You ever had anybody say that to you before? I don't know if there's any words that are more powerful than those words. And so in light of that question, in light of that, let me ask you a question. How, how does Jesus see you right now? I'm talking uh, primarily this morning. Um, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're not a Christian and you're asking questions, um, this is a great place to do that. And I'm glad that you're here and we welcome those questions. But I do want to say that this morning I am talking primarily to those who have put their faith and put their trust in Jesus. And I want to ask you this question. How does Jesus see you right now, right at this very moment? He knows everything about you. He knows every thought that you've ever had. He knows everything that you've ever done in secret or in private. He knows every word that, that is, is about to come out of your mouth before it comes out of your mouth. He's seen all the parts of you that you so desperately want to keep hidden. How does he look at you? How does he see you? 
Now, I think this last scene in the Bible, these are the last, some of the last words of of God's word to us. These are some of the last things that he wants us uh, to meditate on and to see and and to hear with our ears and to come alongside John and behold, these are the things that he wants us to see. And of all the metaphors that have been used in Revelation, and there's been a lot of them, I think that this is one that is the most powerful and the most beautiful, because how does Jesus see you right now? He sees you as his bride. He sees you as his wife. And what does that mean? That means that he doesn't, he doesn't just tolerate you. And I think that that's what we think about God a lot of times, is that, man, um, he's really good to tolerate somebody as, as awful as I am. That he doesn't treat you right now as an employee in his kingdom. And he's rating you every week um, as far as your production and your efficiency goes. And in this week, he's really proud of you. But next week, he might really be disappointed with you. He doesn't treat you like a boss. He doesn't treat you as if he's an employer. He doesn't see you right now as dirty. He doesn't see you as revolting. He rejoices over you. As we heard from the prophet Isaiah, these are God's words that God gave to the prophet to say to us. He rejoices over his people. How? This is a, a, it's pretty explicit language. He rejoices over his people like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. As strange, as weird... As it may sound to you, I hope that we can see the beauty in it this morning. How does he see you? He he sees you this morning as his wife. You are his wife. That's the metaphor that's not just used here. At the last picture of the Bible, the reason that it creeps back in at the very end of the Bible, because it is a metaphor that has been used throughout the entire Bible to describe how God relates to his people. He relates to his people. God is your husband. Your creator is your husband. It's been used all throughout the Bible. I've had the privilege of of doing a, a lot of weddings, um, do a bunch of weddings, did a wedding just recently in this very room. It was wonderful. And, you know, getting to do weddings, I, I have like the front row seat to everything that's going on. And so I really love, I get to see the expressions on their faces right in front of mine. But the, the pivotal moment, I mean, the moment that we kind of come to weddings for is that moment when the doors open up and the bride comes out. And everybody's waiting to see what she's going to look like. They're going to see what her dress is like. They're going to see, you know, uh, what she did with her hair and what jewelry she has on. And everyone stands. And for that reason, when the bride comes in, the bride is the centerpiece of that covenant ceremony. She's the centerpiece of that wedding. She's supposed to be. And so everyone stands up and they turn and they look at the bride. But I have, to, I have to admit and I have to confess, I never look at the bride. I always look at the groom. Because I'm standing right next to him and as everybody's turned and they're looking at the bride, um, I look over to see what expression is on the groom's face. And I have seen, I've seen like one solitary tear. I've seen like the trembling lip. 
I've seen kind of like the weak knees. I've seen outright weeping. And I even had one guy that I kind of had to pull back because he was running to go meet his bride. <laughs> Is it possible? I don't, we, haven't, we haven't begun to... to to delve into what it, what it might mean? Is it possible that that is how Jesus actually feels about you right at this very moment? And if it does, how does that change your present circumstance? How does that change the way that you look at your life? How does that change some of the hardships that you're in? That Jesus, is it possible, is right now at this very moment peering down the aisle of time and he is waiting for you and he is looking at you to come down the aisle because he has deep affection for you because you are his bride, you are his wife. I think that that's what's been playing out all through this vision of Revelation. It's what's been playing out as we, as we see these forces that are at work in the world, forces of evil that, that want to seduce us and lure us away from loyalty to Jesus. This is the grand finale of history. And isn't it crazy that the grand finale of history is a wedding banquet? It is a wedding feast because the marriage of the Lamb has come. I've been meditating a lot on this this week. And, you know, it's interesting. In the last, in the last few, I was saying to Joe this week, in the last few um, passages we've looked at, they were so complex and so difficult. And I had never preached on them before. And I was like, man, what do I do with these passages? They're so rich and so crazy. And then we come to this one. And this one is just like, this is like the creme de la creme of passages, right? This is like what preachers pray for. And I've just been staring at it all week and go, how do we put this into words? How do, we adi- how do I adequately express what's going on in this passage? And as I've been reading and thinking and praying about it, one of the things that I stumbled upon was somebody's description in one of the commentaries of, of what weddings looked like in the first century. And as you start, as I started to hear the description of what, it, they weren't totally different than how we experience weddings, but there were some things that were really different that I didn't really fully understand until I started reading about. And it makes the metaphor go a lot deeper. And one commentator, he, he put it this way, that basically a wedding at this time, when the hearers heard this um, read aloud as the church, in the, church, the seven churches, they would have understood that in a, in a typical wedding in their day, there was a, a series of things that happened. There was a period of betrothal. There was a period of preparation. And then there was a, there was a party there was a big wedding feast. And the, be- the period of betrothal is the part that's probably most different than ours. This is what we would call engagement. But basically what would happen is that a groom would come to the bride's house and there would be arrangements that were made. I mean, it was different than the way that we did things because one of the arrangements that were made is that there would be a price that was discussed. There's a dowry, Right? And that purchase price was given to the father. And once that purchase price was given, then that that bride was consecrated 
and set aside and set apart for this groom, that legally they were, they were bound together. And this was a ceremony. This was a betrothal ceremony. And oftentimes it would be sealed, like a lot of covenant ceremonies are, that it would be sealed with a cup, a cup of wine. This is a new covenant that has just been made. But then the groom, this is where it becomes different, the groom would leave. And he would go back uh, to his father's house, most likely, and he would begin over a period of time that could last up to about a year, that he would begin to prepare a place for his new bride. And the bride would stay behind and she would begin to prepare for the wedding. And even though they didn't see each other during this time, they were legally and they were spiritually bound. And one scholar put it this way, so binding was this betrothal agreement, this covenant, that if a man died during the betrothal period, the woman was considered a widow. To break the betrothal agreement was the same as divorce. And so often what would happen is the bridegroom would, would return to, to, to his bride. And they knew around the time when this would typically take place, but they didn't always know the hour and they didn't know the day. And sometimes a, a groom would come in the middle of the night, would come at midnight. And there would be an announcement that would made as the groom has come. The bridegroom has come. And the bride would get the ones who were with her in her wedding party, and they would all get adorned in their fine linen and in their jewels, and they would come out to meet their bridegroom. And there would be a short ceremony that was followed by a huge supper, a huge feast, and their feast um, would last seven to 14 days. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us as we think about that imagery And then we think about Jesus taking on flesh, coming down to the earth, and at the very beginning of his his ministry, um, John tells us in John chapter 2 that the first, John calls it a sign, the first sign was where? Was it a wedding feast? Of course it was. And what did Jesus do at that wedding feast? That Jesus took, as the wine ran out, Jesus took these these massive jars that were full of water that were used for the purification of sin. And Jesus turned that, that water into the wine of blessing. So that that party would go on, and that party would go on, and that party would go on. And when Jesus, at the end of his ministry, is having a Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, what does he do? He takes a cup, and he says, this cup is a new covenant. What? In my blood. And then what does he tell them? I'm leaving you. But I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. But I'm going to come back for you so that where I am, you may be also. And it couldn't, it couldn't be any more explicit that Jesus has purchased us with a great price. Jesus has purchased us with his own blood and he has sealed the betrothal with a covenant and he has promised to prepare a place for us and he has promised to come again for us. And what John gets to see is this picture of that great day. And he's saying, look at this. The marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That she is given a garment 
of righteousness. But he also says that the fine linen is also the righteous deeds of the saints. And I read that and I go, well, which one is it? Is she given a, a, a robe of righteousness or does she produce one? And I think John is saying, yes, that she is robed in the righteousness of Jesus. And because she is robed in the righteousness of Jesus, what she has produced in her time here on earth are actual righteous deeds. And I think that those righteous deeds are this. They are the sufferings and the persecutions of the ones who have kept their eyes fixed upon Jesus. They are fixed upon the bridegroom. And they are anxiously awaiting his coming. And what I want to say to you this morning is this. That if your faith is in Christ, you are betrothed to Jesus. And he has not forgotten you. And it may feel like he's forgotten you. And it may feel like he doesn't care. And it may feel like your life is, is difficult and hard and not the way you planned it to be. But he has betrothed himself to you. And you are legally bound to him. And you are spiritually bound to him. That you are united with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he has not forgotten you. That he is coming again. And I think this imagery, I mean, it helps me at least, and I told you this last week, that this imagery makes a lot more sense of the fact that Jesus uses the image and the metaphor of a prostitute to describe the evil one who wants us to lure us away from him. Because running after other gods, what is running after other idols and other gods in this life? It's basically saying to him, what you've told me is a lie and it's not true. Because I'm going to find something else that meets my needs right here and right now in a better way that you do. That's what sin is. Sin is saying no to God. It's saying that you're not good. It's saying that you're not who you say you are. And I'm going to find a better way. And I'm going to find another way. And what the Bible says that is to those of us who are betrothed to Jesus is that it's spiritual adultery. I mean, to use the words of the Old Testament that all, all the time that's used for God's people as they run after other gods is they're playing the whore. And the only way to resist the lure of the world and the, that wants to seduce you into this idea of a perfect life that's an illusion, the only way to resist the temptation to hide and pretend that you're something that you're not, the only way to experience true freedom now in a world that is fallen and is broken is to know that you have a Savior who sees you exactly as you are and who forgives you and accepts you and weds himself to you for all eternity. We endure and we fight against the flesh and we resist temptation. Why? Because we have a bridegroom and we are betrothed to him. And what he gives us and what he promises us is better than anything that this life can possibly offer. One of my friends who's in the ministry, has been in the ministry longer than, a lot longer than I have, um, he told a story once about, somebody asked him, like, what was, what's one of the most incredible things you've seen? And he said, you know, it, was, it happened really early in ministry. Was, he was actually a lowly intern for a campus ministry. And um, as I heard the story, I, I really, um, it's a little graphic, I'm going to, but it's, it's PG, okay? But it is, um, 
We may need earmuffs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's unsettling, but in a beautiful way, that it is really one of the more incredible stories. He said, this is one of the most incredible conversions I've seen, is that this guy that I'd gotten to know on campus was, um, he was not a believer. He was addicted to all sorts of substances. He was horribly depressed. And there was, a, basically, it got so dark in his life that he decided that he didn't want to live anymore. And he decided that he wanted, to, he wanted to take his own life. And the way that he did this, and this is the graphic part, um, is, is basically he, he burned himself. He doused himself in gasoline. And he lit a match. And he said that there was a, a neighbor in the, in the complex that they lived in who had, you know, spoken to him. They, they were next-door neighbors and had seen him. And she had looked out, she just happened to look out of her window that night, and she sees, I mean, obviously an image you could never get out of your mind, she sees him burning. And she grabs a blanket, and she runs outside, and she tackles him, and she smothers the fire, and she saves his life. And of course, um, this guy spends, you know, a crazy amount of time in the hospital, and so she goes to see him, and she goes to see him, and she starts to go to see him every day. And she begins to, to pray for him, and she begins to tell him um, the gospel. She just tells him the good news of Jesus, and she tells it to him over and over again until finally he believes it. And he becomes, he becomes a Christian. And this is the next step that I was like, this is an incredible story. They get married. And he tells it like this. He said, after they got married, he, he had been obviously very disfigured. That all over him were the scars of his, of his misery, the scars of his depression. And he said, the first thing that happened after they got married is that she took a good long time and she kissed every one of those scars. And he said, what she did for me is she covered my shame. She covered my shame. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. How do God's people endure? We set our eyes on that day. That he will clothe us in the robes of righteousness, the fine linen, bright and pure, that we keep the feast because things are not only as they seem to be right now, here and now, no matter how bad it may seem to you, because we are betrothed to Jesus, and he's the only one who can cover our shame. So I want to say this to you, like, right now you might be in a marriage that you feel like is miserable, and we can endure, and why can we endure? We can endure because we are married to Jesus, literally. And we, we know this, that we have not been promised in this life a perfect marriage. And the more that we understand that I am married to one who has seen me fully and who knows me and who fully accepts me and who does forgive me, instead of me fixating on the fact that my marriage is not perfect or maybe my spouse doesn't understand me or treat me the way that I want to be treated, I might actually be set free to love them in a way that I've never loved them before. It means that we can endure singleness when we want to be married. 
Because we, aren't, because we know that we're not promised a spouse here. And we know that we are married to Jesus. It means that we know that we're not promised sexual fulfillment here. That it's not a right. But we are promised to be known and accepted and loved for all of eternity. It means that we can endure a difficult and heinous maybe job situation here. Because we know that our job does not have the final say on who we are. Jesus does. It means that we can endure grief here. Because we belong and are betrothed to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Friends, this is why every week, no matter what, we come to this table. We come to this table no matter what has happened in your week, no matter what is going on in your life. For those of you who are betrothed to Jesus, you come to his table. Why? Because this table is a piece of that feast that is to come. And no matter what is happening in your life, and no matter how bad things may seem to be, those of us who belong to Jesus, we come and what do we take? We take his body and his blood. And what he is saying to you is this, I haven't forgotten you. Because you're mine, and you're mine, and I'm coming again for you. And no matter how you might feel right now, this table shouts that to you this morning. You belong to Jesus. He has wed himself to you. You didn't earn it. It's not because you were lovely. It's because he saw what you might be and what he could make you into. We don't have to send out our personal PR campaign. We don't have to hide anymore or cover or cower in shame and guilt. Why? Because Jesus knows everything and he loves us. Jesus knows everything about you and he doesn't run the other way. He adores you. And is making you more beautiful, spotless, clean, without any blemish, so that he might feast with you for all of eternity. The invitations to the feast, they're going out right now. The invitation is going out even as I preach the sermon this morning. Won't you come? Let me pray. Father, for those of us this morning whose faith is in you, who know you, Father, would you help us? Because we're so easily distracted. Um, We're so easily discouraged. We're so easily drawn to other things that seem to give us what we might need right here and right now. And so I pray that as we come to this table this morning, I pray that you would help us to see and to taste how good our Savior is to us. Father, I pray that you would give us endurance. I pray that you would give us faith. I pray that you would give us, even in the midst of what might sometimes feel dark and difficult and hard, I pray that you would give us the joy of your salvation. Help us to taste it this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come now and celebrate. We call it a feast. Because it's a foretaste of the feast that is to come.